Hello and welcome to the Jonas Aller Show. I'm glad that you're here. For those of you who do not know me, I am your host, Jonas Saller. Um, today we're going to be studying something new. We just got finished studying the Olivet Discourse for those who have tuned in before. Uh, last week we wrapped up the third and final part of the Olivet Discourse. Um, and so now we're getting into a brand new topic. Uh, for those of you who haven't listened to it, you can go back and listen to the Olivet Discourse. I did three-part series on it. Um, you can find that on my website. You can listen to the audio on Spotify and iTunes, um, as well as you can go back and watch the live videos here on YouTube. Um, for those on TikTok, you guys can watch it going to either to my website or going to my YouTube channel. So today, I have entitled the message that I'm preaching today, the King Victorious, or the Victorious King, whichever you like better. Um, and this is all about trying to really bring a message of encouragement, a message of hope, um, and a message of optimism to Christianity. I think that especially in today's times, we can look at the world and we can oftentimes be very discouraged by it. And so, my prayer is this morning that this message is uplifting and it brings encouragement um, that our, our king is truly victorious. So, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, um, verse 46. So we're just reading one verse to get, to get started, but please, if you have a Bible, please turn to Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. This passage is addressing Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross right before he died. And this is what it says. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shakabathani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come before you now. We're so grateful for you. We're so grateful for your Son, Jesus Christ, for the death that he died so that we might also die. And Lord, we pray and thank you for the life that he now lives so that we might also live. God, we feel so blessed. We are so blessed. And I pray this morning we would see the truth of your word um, the wonderful, wonderful truth of your word, and we would be greatly, greatly encouraged. In your precious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. So for me, this might be one of my favorite moments in Scripture, what we just read, and yet it seems to be very misunderstood by many. The vast majority of evangelical Christians today, including myself growing up, read this verse and kind of take it at face value and assume that God the Father has abandoned Christ, that he turned his face from him. And we even see this theme of, of thought in the songs that have lyrics like, you know, the Father turned his face away. And it seems from a natural reading that this is exactly what happened. Why else would Jesus cry out in such a way? But what we need to do is recognize that in order to have a consistent and correct hermeneutic, which just means how to interpret scripture, 
we need to often go back and see that a lot of the New Testament is taken directly from the Old Testament. And we must then use the light of the New Testament to go back and interpret the Old. And this is essential for understanding Scripture. And in this case, the most beautiful thing is when we go back to the Old Testament, we see that Jesus was not just aimlessly crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that he was actually quoting a Psalm of David. Psalm 22 to be exact. And my friends, what we find in this psalm is remarkable. What we see as we read is not just a cry of feeling forsaken, but really a cry of victory. So again, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Psalm chapter 22. And let's read this psalm from start to finish together. So please turn with me to Psalm chapter 22. Let's read together. I'll wait for people to get there. If you have Bibles with you, please turn there with me now. Psalm chapter 22. Starting in verse 1 all the way to the end. This is the word of the Lord. Let's read together. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravenous, roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the afflicted, the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, 
but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him, shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Brothers and sisters, I hope that you already see the incredible truth that this passage brings to life. It starts with a cry of despair, but it ends with a proclamation of victory. It starts with feeling forsaken and ends with definite conquering. This matters. This matters greatly because it shapes how we view and interact with the world around us. If Christians look at the world as a lost cause, it impacts how we live and how we evangelize. Now listen, I'm not trying to state that our world is going to be totally and utterly Christianized. But I do believe that as time goes on, the gospel will continue to grow and impact the world around us. But we need to be ready to engage with the world. But before we get into all that, I want to return to the psalm and really show you just how incredible this picture is. So verse 1 starts out with the words of Jesus while he hung on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But by verse 4, we already see the hope of the true reality of the cross. Verse 4 and 5 say, In you our fathers trusted. They trusted in what? And you delivered them. Verse 5, To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Friends, Jesus is hanging on the cross, probably naked, bleeding, bearing the shame of mankind's sin. And yet the psalmist writes, To you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. I don't know about you, but already I am not seeing a tragic picture of God removing himself from Christ, but rather a picture of total confidence in the plan of God. Christ, hanging on a tree for the sins of the world, quoting a psalm that states, I trust you and will not be put to shame. In fact, I will be rescued. As we go on, we see more lamenting and more crying out. And as we arrive at verses 16 to 18, we see a clear picture that this psalm is a prophetic word about Jesus Christ from start to finish. This is unbelievable. Verse 16 through 18. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Now through the Gospels, we know that Jesus was nailed to a cross through his hands and his feet. And we also see in Matthew 27, verse 35, And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them, 
by casting lots. These were written long apart. Brothers and sisters, this whole chapter is a narrative of Christ Jesus. And we, as we go on, we begin to see that Jesus' words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, are not merely a cry of lament, but really a cry that ultimately screams victory. As we continue reading and arrive at verse 24, we do see the beautiful truth that God did not remove his presence from Christ. Verse 24, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. That feeling of abandonment and despair is replaced with a shout that the Father was with, with Christ as he bled on that tree, that his face was towards him, that he did hear his cry. And when we get down to verse 27 to the end, we see what I think is the most remarkable picture in this whole psalm. A picture that God is the deliverer, that God is the rescuer, that God has not hidden his face and that God was right there with Jesus Christ with a greater plan in mind. Jesus, being God himself, knew this. His death was not in vain. His death was for a greater purpose, and that was to save the world. In verse 27, we read a staggering prediction. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. I just want to meditate on that. How many of us believe the hope in that phrase. I mean, if we're being honest, I would say that most of us read that and smile thinking, if, if only. I mean, that sounds incredible, but look at the world around us. It's morally declining. We often think there's no way. But I want to challenge us this morning. Is there no way according to our perception of the world in its state or God's? God has declared purpose for this world and those within it. And his purpose is this, that all would come to repentance and place their trust in his son, Jesus Christ. That is his declared purpose for humanity. Not condemnation, but salvation. John 3, 17-18 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe 
is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We read this, and yet we sometimes act as though God's intended purpose is to condemn the world, so we'd better repent before it's too late. No, the world was already condemned. Man was already condemned. God breaking into this world in the flesh was a rescue mission. And my friends, he is only tarrying his second coming right now because he is still waiting in his infinite knowledge for the final of the elect to repent and receive him. Brothers and sisters, we were given a mission on this earth. We are the messengers of Christ in the world, the body of Christ. And him, Jesus, through us, his ambassadors, will reach all peoples. This is not a maybe. This is a mission that already has a sure result. This is sealed in stone, spoken by God himself. Now, I do want to clarify that I'm not trying to promote a sense of universalism. The idea that everyone will be saved or even that evil will be totally rooted out of uh, in this world. But rather that Jesus Christ proclaimed victory while he was on the cross. Not for a future time, but right then and there. And my friends, we are living in that reality and we should be living in that reality with that mindset. Ultimately, we do not know percentage-wise how many people will be saved. 90%? 30%? We don't know. But the one thing we do know is that a lot of people will be saved. A lot more than most of us think. And we get this straight from Scripture. In Genesis and in Revelation. The beginning and the end. Genesis 15.5 If you have a Bible, please turn there with me. Let's read this together. Genesis 15.5 A picture of the extent of God's grace and extent of all the people he will draw to himself. Genesis 15.5 This is God talking to Abraham and making him a promise. Listen to what he says. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them then he said to them so shall your offspring be now i don't know about you but have you ever tried counting the stars when we just take a small picture of the stars that we see they are innumerable and then we recognize that we are just a small piece of a galaxy and beyond that, there are trillions of galaxies, and within those galaxies, there are trillions of stars. And God says, so shall your offspring be. If we turn to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, we see another picture of the extent and the magnitude of God's people. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The harvest of believers will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And as John says, there will be a great multitude that no one can number from every tribe, people, and language. 
Brothers and sisters, this is what we have to look forward to. This is what our God has promised. This is his declared purpose for this world. Not a message of condemnation, but a message of salvation. And friends, this is what we have the privilege to be a part of. We, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are helping to bring this declared end about. That should change us. That should change our perspective. And with that, I get into the more unfortunate side of this message. And the truth is, I am deeply burdened by the rampant pessimism I see within modern evangelical culture. We tend to have this attitude that the world is crumbling around us with really no hope. So we try to be in the world, but not of the world, interacting with our church family, but holding society at an arm's length. I'm worried because this gives the impression that we are losing. And I know no Christian believes that we are losing. But sometimes I don't think Christians understand the extent in which we're winning. Now, I want to give an example. I'm a really, really big fan of wrestling. It is one of my favorite sports. Some of you may have even noticed my cauliflower ear. I've been around the block a few times doing some grappling of my own. But I love wrestling because it's about two individuals going toe-to-toe, battling for takedowns and ultimately the pin. Now, having watched countless wrestling matches, I can always tell who's going to lose. At first, they are both aggressive, going at it hard, fighting for the takedown. Then, one of them gets the first two-point takedown. And this is the make-or-break moment. I can look at the individual who gave up a takedown, and I can see one of two things. Either determination to overcome the opponent, or a look of defeat. And if that look of defeat comes across the face of a wrestler, the opponent sees that and capitalizes on it. And from there, despite there being lots of time on the clock, the other man has accepted that he has lost and his goal is no longer to win, but just to hold on as long as he can until the buzzer goes off. It goes from offense to defense. And unfortunately, this is how I see a lot of Christians living on the defense, holding on as long as they can, waiting for the rapture to take them out of here. Now, of course, I don't mean this in a condescending way, but rather to make the point that a lot of us look at the clearly deteriorating culture. It's clear that that's what's happening. But instead of seeing opportunity, we see defeat. Now, a slightly humorous but also wonderful comparison was given by one of my favorite theologians, Doug, Doug Wilson, and he gave this to basically exaggeratedly show the way that our optimism has changed throughout history. So I'm paraphrasing here, but this is the gist of what he said. In the mid-1500s, there were two men by the name of Latimer and Ridley, and this is a true story. And both of them were put to death under Bloody Mary for their faith in Jesus. Now, on the day of their execution, which was to be burned at the stake, both of them are tied to a post about to be burned, surrounded by jeering crowds. 
Latimer leans over to Ridley, and like I said, this is a true story. Latimer leans over to Ridley as they're about to be burned, and this is what he says. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. As these men are back to back, about to be burnt alive, Latimer essentially said, Ridley, we've got them now. Now, friends, that is the kind of faith and optimism that only comes from Christians. Now, Doug contrasts this with the modern evangelical, where you have a man reclining in his lazy boy, watching the news on his giant state-of-the-art flat-screen TV with surround sound. After seeing the news, he turns off the TV, climbs out of his lazy boy, and heads to the kitchen. Upon reaching the kitchen, he opens his double fridge to pull out a cold drink. Pouring it in a nice glass, he turns to his wife and says, Baby, do we have any ice for this? She says, It's in the freezer. So he, he pour, pulls the ice out and puts it in his glass, and now his drink is just right. And then he turns to her again and says, Honey, I just watched the news. We're in the last days. <laughs> now, obviously, this illustration is an exaggeration, but it's an exaggeration for a purpose. A purpose to show that how far we have come from the optimism and assurance that the gospel will succeed to the fullest extent amidst a hostile world. Now to illustrate this and to show that I'm not making this up, I want to read a quote I found from a well-known pastor from America. Many of you have heard of him. His name's John MacArthur, and I love John MacArthur. He has been a phenomenal help to me in my growth as a Christian and I truly believe that he's a God-fearing, godly man, and I highly recommend any of you who are watching to go listen to John MacArthur. But listen to his commentary on America. This is what he says. What we're going to see in America as we lose the Christian influence, as the Senate and the Congress and the courts of our country become literally driven to get the Bible out of everything and to keep the separation— we're going to see depravity just continue to flourish and flourish and flourish in an unbounded fashion in this country. There's no question about that. Now, friends, notice that he says, as we lose the Christian influence. That, my friends, is a spirit of defeat. And he goes on to say that we're going to see depravity continue to flourish and flourish and flourish. And while that might be true, that doesn't mean anything when it comes to the success and the reach of the gospel, which will continue to flourish and flourish and flourish as we are promised in Scripture. This isn't some sort of far-fetched hope. This is the Word of God. Notice how Jesus taught us to pray. Many of you know the Lord's Prayer by heart. You can quote it. You can say it. Notice the beginning. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How many of us actually hear what we're saying? Lord Jesus, your kingdom come. Your will be done. The same that your kingdom is in heaven, let that be so on earth. The same that your will is done in heaven, let that so be on earth. Friends, this is how Jesus taught us. 
This is the proclamation we are making every time we say this prayer. What about in John's Gospel where Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. How many of us read that and believe that Satan has been dethroned and subdued all the way back when Jesus was here the first time? How many of us believe that Jesus sitting on his glorious throne is actually in the process of drawing all men unto himself? So many of us forget. We think that this world is the domain of Satan and that heaven is the domain of God. And yet we forget the words of Christ once again at the end of Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, 18 says, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority where? In heaven? No, in heaven and on earth. I guess the prince of this world was cast out, just as Jesus says. Christians, are, are we living with this perspective? Are we living with this perspective? And the most amazing thing about this entire sermon that Jesus gave to his disciples, this entire commission, is that he didn't stop there. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and because of that authority, the call for us, Go therefore. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is a picture straight back to Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came and approached the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." This is what Jesus received when he ascended, and it is through that power that we go into the world as more than conquerors. And we can go on further. Jesus describes the kingdom of God this way. In Matthew 13, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. What we see here is a slow and yet steady advance. What started small is now growing until it conquers the world. And we go back to Daniel's prophecy and we see this as well. In Daniel chapter 2, in the vision of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel says, As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. 
Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. A small stone cut by no human hand that conquered all other kingdoms and grew to be a mountain that filled the whole earth. Friends, how can we remain pessimistic after hearing all of this? We see the reality of this all around us. After Christ's resurrection and the commission to the twelve apostles, these twelve men looked at unbelieving Israel and the looming Gentile nations, all of them in darkness, worshiping pagan gods under the clutches of the devil. Today, we look around and see tons of ethnic Israelites, ethnic Jews who have received Christ, and all the Gentile nations of the world have believers in them, further proving that Satan is bound from deceiving the nations. And as Jesus sa- as Hebrews says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, since that time waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. Friends, this is the reality we are living in. This is the hope we have. This is the confidence we need to go and conquer an unbelieving world. We need to destroy this rampant pessimism that is infecting our Christian world. We need to stop hiding in our churches and actually go into the world preaching our victory message. Not of a king to come, but of a king who was enthroned almost 2,000 years ago. The world needs to know that there is a new ruler in town and his name is Jesus Christ. All authority and government in this world is under the rule of Christ and will be brought into submission to him. As for us, this comes in all forms. How do we partake in this beautiful commission? Well, I challenge you, Christians, get involved in politics. Christians, get involved in education. Christians, get involved in the sciences, in the arts, and all sorts of things. Don't let the culture trick you into thinking we have been conquered. Going back to the wrestling analogy, we still have time left on the clock. And our coach has given us a bulletproof game plan. It will not fail. So we can go in against the opponent of society without a sense of imminent doom. Now, does this mean we will not suffer? Of course not. Suffering even unto death will exist until the end. But the hope we have, in the words of Paul, is that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Friends, we can find the greatest joy in our suffering. Whether that means sucking it up during quarantine and respecting the government's wishes for us to stay at home, Or the extent of saying, I will not renounce my Lord with a gun to your head. It does not change our peace. We are not in a battle. We are not in a battle. We are in a victory that is playing out before our eyes. Imagine you're watching a football game, but you know the end score. It takes all the tension out of the game. 
Friends, that's what we have. We know the outcome. With that being said, that is why I'm preaching what I'm preaching today. I see so many of us running around saying Jesus will return to make all things right one day. But our perspective on this present age is very abstract. We kind of have this disconnect between this present age and the age to come where we say Jesus is going to come and make things all right, but we kind of believe that he's just kind of sitting up in heaven while Satan runs loose and this is his time. We need to get back to the reality that not only has Christ already won, and not only will he make all things right one day, but he's in the process of that now. And we, his messengers, are intimately involved in that. Think about it this way. We look towards the resurrection of our bodies. We look towards the new heavens and the new earth. We look towards the culmination of those things, but the inauguration of those things has already happened on Calvary. The new heavens and the new earth have been inaugurated. The new creation, we are called a new creation in Christ, has been inaugurated in a spiritual sense. We are living in a spiritual reality awaiting its culmination in the physical sense. And so we can have so much hope. Too many people see the Old Testament, we get to the cross, we see the wonderful work, but then we believe that history is just continuing on as it always was until Jesus returns. It's not. It's not just continuing on. There was a change that was made. Satan was cast out, Satan was bound, and Jesus took the throne. And now we are living in the reality that he is in the process of gathering all men unto himself. And us as Christians, we are the evidence of that. Now, to close this message, I want to bring this whole thing full circle. I want to go back to Jesus' words on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here, we see that Jesus is quoting verse 1 of the psalm that we had just read. But now I want to turn our attentions to Jesus' final words on the cross in John 19.30. The final words of Jesus on the cross says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is verse one of the psalm. And his final words are, it is finished. And what is the last word of the psalm? They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Friends, I don't think this is an accident. So my challenge to you today as we close is to spend less time looking at the evil and the depravity of the world, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And spend more time smiling and saying that he has done it. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, you are the great conqueror. You are the sovereign Lord, the king of this world, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you, and you are reigning supreme, drawing all men to yourself. And Lord, I am a product of that declaration. I am a product 
of your redeeming grace. And Lord, what a privilege it is to look around at a dying, decaying world and say, there are so much opportunity for harvest. And God, I know that that implanted desire for those who do not know you to come to you is your desire being made manifest through us as Christians. God, your heart flows through us because you are dwelling within us. And so God, as we look at an unbelieving world, I pray that we would not lose heart, that we would not go, oh, this world is dying, Lord, just come take us out of here. But that we would eagerly anticipate your second coming with the mission right now that we are not dealing with a hopeless world, but we are dealing with a world that has been promised. A world that has been promised to have drawn unto you. A world in which the psalmist writes, all nations, all peoples will repent and remember the Lord. And God, you and your infinite knowledge know exactly how many people that will be. And so our job, Lord, is to just go and disciple the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all the things you taught us, Lord, and teaching them that it is finished. It has been done. Lord, what a wonderful, wonderful reality we live in. Not one of hopelessness, but one of a victorious king. In your precious name, Jesus, we pray through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.